Uh, we're in Luke chapter 16 today. We'll be looking at verses 9 through 15 in just a couple of minutes. As I have often said to you, we're not like everybody else. Uh, Christians' view of what reality is differs from people who aren't Christians. And so that leads us to behave differently from them and many, and sometimes in substantial ways. That is never clearer than it is in today's text, which can help a, a Christ follower get into a right relationship with money. So let me read it. This is Luke 16, verses 9 through 15 from the New International Version. I tell you, Jesus is speaking, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with very much or with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you haven't been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you're the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. I uh, got gas the other night and went in to pay and had to wait longer than usual because of the Powerball lottery, right? The last I heard it was at over $750 million. I know maybe somebody won it, I don't know, but uh, let's suppose a Jesus follower gets all caught up in the, the lottery madness and he goes out and he buys a Powerball ticket and he wins three quarters of a billion dollars. When he tells his wife when they get the news, she faints dead away. And, and then after she recovers, they begin talking about what they're going to do with all that money, how they're going to pay off all their debts and all their children's debts and their best friend's medical bills. And after that, they'll still have over 700 and some billion, million dollars. There'll be new homes, vacations, no more work at the factory. Everything will change. If you won the Powerball, you might think it was the biggest thing that ever happened to you. You know what Jesus would think? He would think it was a very little thing. Three quarters of a billion dollars? A very little thing. That's what he calls money. When in verse 11 he says, whoever can be trusted with very little, the very little he's talking about is money. If you think winning the lottery is the biggest thing that could ever happen to you, man, I want to introduce you to Jesus and to the kingdom of God. He has true riches that he can give that will not only change your situation for 10 or 20 years, but will change you forever. And that's only the beginning of what true riches can accomplish in this world. And here's the thing, God wants to give true riches to people. 
Look at verse 9. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Use worldly wealth represents the only imperative mood verb, the only command in this entire section. That means this is the application verse for the parable that precedes it. By the way, most difficult parable Jesus ever taught for people to understand. It is a tough one. And I'm not going to go into that this morning, but if you come to go deep at Big B Coffee on Wednesday at 6.45, we're going to go into it a little bit there. This is the application verse for the parable and for the teaching that follows the parable. We'll think more about that in a few minutes. But for now, I just want to say this. If you want to know what the take-home to this text is, the the down-to-earth, here's what you should do. This is it. Use worldly wealth to make friends for yourself. Now, verses 9 through 13 form one of Jesus' central teachings about how his followers relate to money. It is so tightly constructed that it's like poetry. There are three sections, like stanzas. Each section has six idea units. The first comes in verse 9 and contains the application for this section. It could be titled, The Use of Money. The second, which comes in verse 12, could be titled the test of money. And the third, which comes in verse 13, could be titled the danger of money. We'll look at the test of money in verses 10 through 12 first, then the danger of money in verse 13. Then we'll come back to our application verse, verse 9, for the use of money. And then we'll end with a warning that we find in verses 14 and 15. So look at verse 10. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. That's the test of money. Were you suddenly to come into money, whether three quarters of a billion dollars or a few thousand dollars, it would be like you walked into a hospital for a battery of tests, x-rays and CT scans and MRIs and blood work, only this would be a soul hospital a soul hospital, that money would reveal the state of your soul. When Jesus says, whoever can be trusted with little, remember that the little, and in Greek, the the construction here is called an elative superlative. The little could be translated very little or a trifle, something insubstantial. When he's talking about that, he's talking about money. It's just a little thing. But it's a little thing like taking an x-ray is a little thing. When you're exposed to it, it reveals the health of your soul. The NIV translates, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. Whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. But the Greek is more to the point. It's not can be, but is. Whoever is trustworthy with very little is trustworthy with much. And it's not will be, but... Whoever is dishonest with very little is, present tense, dishonest with much. It's the test of money. How many people who say, if I won the lottery, I'd give it all away, would rethink that the moment they won? They'd be hiring lawyers and bodyguards and trying to sidestep relatives whenever they could. They'd be worried about the future, telling themselves, well, God gave us this money for a reason, so we need to be wise about it, and we should avoid making any quick decisions. But their wisdom would be 
the world's wisdom, and their decisions would be the same ones that non-Christians would make. And that money would show every crack in their souls. It's the test of money. And it's not just potential winnings that test us. It's our weekly take-home pay. There's nothing hypothetical about that. The way we deal with money is a test. As followers of Jesus, our use of money ought to reflect the breaking in of the kingdom of God and the salvation of our souls. If it doesn't, we fail the test. If it doesn't, we've got the disease. Look at verse 11. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you haven't been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? See, the money test has consequences. If you fail, you will not be entrusted with true riches. So how do we pass the test? You know, it's really simple. We use money in a trustworthy manner. Now, let me tell you what that doesn't mean. That doesn't mean that we account for every nickel in our expense account. It doesn't mean that we're OCD about our budget. It means that we treat money as a trust and not as personal discretionary funds. We recognize that money, like every other resource, belongs to God, and we've been entrusted with its use as operatives of his kingdom. If you didn't hear the sermon back on June 3rd, titled, Wise and Wherefores, get online and listen. It provides foundational biblical teaching for what we're talking about here today. The almost breathtaking possibility in these verses is that if we're trustworthy in this little thing in money, God will give us, literally, he will entrust us with the true thing. Money amounts to training wheels for tots. Money is a preliminary. It's a get-your-feet-wet trial run. If we do well with it, if, if we handle it as a trust, then we'll receive the real thing. And the real thing is enough to make a person forget all about Powerball. The real thing is power in the kingdom of God. As St. Paul said, the kingdom is not a matter of talk, but of power. Remember what the master in the famous parable of the talents said to his servant, because you've been trustworthy in a very little matter, it's exactly the same word that we have here, in a trifle. And again, he was talking about money. Because you've been trustworthy in that, take charge of 10 cities. Do you see what the real thing is compared with the very little thing is? It's influence with the God of heaven. So that when we talk, he listens. It's authority in his kingdom. Only a fool would choose money over that. And verse 12 points to something even more spectacular. Once a person is proved trustworthy, faithful with the money God's entrusted him, he can be given property of his own. See, the trustworthy person is entrusted by God with kingdom authority and measure equal to his faithfulness. This goes right along with what St. Augustine had in mind when he said, love God and do what you will. Love God and do what you will. He knew that when you love God, what you do will be good, that God will trust you. But when you love money, you will never be trustworthy. 
and you will never love God. Money love and God love are antithetical. Just as you can't go north and south at the same time, you can't love God and money at the same time. And that's verse 13. Really, that's the message of verse 13, which makes clear the danger of money. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one. That's literally cling to. You will cling to the one. How pathetic it is to see someone who's clinging to money. You'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You can't do it. That's the rule. But how many people believe that they're the exception to the rule? It's called rich young ruler syndrome. And it causes spiritual vision disorders. It makes present challenges appear inordinately large and looming. And it makes God appear small and remote. And that makes trusting him all but impossible. You can't trust a small, remote God with your life. Money love is a dangerous spiritual illness. And it's progressive It spreads through a person's life and affects all of his or her relationships, including the relationship with God. It damages spiritual vision and robs a person of spiritual hearing. See, the Pharisees in Jesus' day had it bad. They stood in the presence of the Son of God, whom they should have welcomed with open arms, who was the embodiment of everything they said they desired. But they couldn't hear him. And they couldn't see who he was. Look at verse 14. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. They sneered. The Greek word literally means they turned up their noses at the one to whom they should have bowed their knees. But they couldn't see him. They couldn't hear him. The disease had done its work. Money love was killing them. The wise man said, whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. You know, it's sometimes said that money's neutral, and it's what we do with it that makes it good or bad. I'm not so sure. That's kind of like saying an inland taipan. Do you know what an inland taipan is? It's the most venomous snake in the world. Its venom is so powerful that in one bite, it dispenses enough venom to kill 200 people. It's like saying an inland taipan is neutral. It's what you do with it. And sure, its venom is used for medicinal purpose. It can be used for good things. But that doesn't mean that if you encounter one on your living room floor, you should tell yourself, well, that's just neutral. It's just what I do with it. When, when our family first moved here, we came from a mission-type church, uh, where we'd serve for seven years, and for five of those years, we got paid only when the church could afford to pay us and what the church could afford to pay us. So that was frequently half, half a salary when we get paid. And the, the salary was only about minimum wage to start with. So sometimes we didn't have anything. We didn't have any food in the cupboards. We didn't have gas in the car. But God took care of us in marvelous, miraculous ways. I, I value those years. Uh, It was a huge faith builder for me. And he did it without us ever telling a single person about our needs except for him. Then we moved here. 
and, and the paycheck came every week. It was remarkable. And it was about twice what I was getting paid before. And you know what happened? For the first time in my life, I started to worry about money. As soon as I got it, I started to worry about it. You know what I told myself? I've waited too long. I'm never going to be able to send the boys to college. Joel's going to go to college in so many years, you know. How I, and then two years after that, it's Brian, and two years after that, it's Kevin. And I'll never be able to save up all that money. I got all wound up about it until my wife, who's not, she's in the nursery today, my wise and godly wife, she knocked me off the side of the head with a word from the Lord. And that saved me. I had taken up a poisonous snake that I didn't know how to handle, and I was that close to getting bit. In Greek, the words the NIV translates as worldly wealth are literally unrighteous mammon. Mammon's an Aramaic word for wealth, probably derived from a term meaning that which one trusts. Richard Foster says, we can't safely use mammon until we are absolutely clear that we are dealing not just with mammon, but with unrighteous mammon. We must never forget that this stuff can poison us. And there's enough poison to poison an entire church. And that has happened in the history of the church again and again. With that understood, we're ready for the application. Go back to verse 9. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Let me give you a more literal translation. And I say to you, make friends for yourself. Make friends for yourselves by use of the mammon of unrighteousness so that when it fails, you'll be received into eternal dwellings. We can't use money to make eternal dwellings, and we don't need to. Jesus is already doing that, remember? In my Father's house are many rooms. If it weren't so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. We can't use money to make eternal dwellings, but we can use it to make friends. If that sounds odd to you, just remember how many things Jesus said that sounded odd to people. And if it sounds shady to you, like a lobbyist trying to bribe a congressman for his vote, you can be sure Jesus wouldn't tell us to do anything morally wrong. But see, this is all about priorities. If you put money before people, you will put money before God. Now let me repeat that in case you missed it. If you put money before people, you will put money before God. It's inviolable. So how can you take up the deadly serpent without getting bit by it? How can you safely handle money? The easiest way is to use it to make friends, which is what Jesus tells us to do. Now, we're not talking about buying friends. Those kind of friends would be gone as soon as the money ran out. We're talking about making friends who will value you because they know you value them. You put them before other things. How can you do that in practical, down-to-earth terms? How can you use the mammon of unrighteousness to make friends? Let me suggest some ways. But you need to think of some of your own. You need to think about this. 
Here's some ways. Take $50 and go out and buy greeting cards under the categories friendship or thinking of you. And each week when we gather, take note of the people listed on the prayer panel and the bulletin. Pray for those people. Take one of them and pray for that person and really pray. When I talk about praying, I'm talking about staying with God about something. Pray for them all week long. And then in the middle of the week, send them a card to let them know that they're important and that you're praying. Or how about this? Use some of your money to pack a Christmas shoebox for Operation Christmas Child. Some child in western Senegal or northern Mali or the mountains of Colombia or down in the hills of Appalachia will receive a box of items at Christmas time with prosaic things in it like toothbrushes and fun things like balls and toys and one necessary thing, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and will be changed. How would you like to see the boy who received your box, now grown up, some six foot seven Fulani tribesman, coming to you with a big smile and arms open wide to receive you into eternal dwellings. I tell you, heaven would laugh and weep for joy. Or how about this? Forego overtime and take part in a small group or a D group where you share your life with other people as part of the kingdom of God. Or Create a new budget item headed friend making and put five bucks in it a week or whatever you can afford. Save it up for something big to do for somebody or use it every week to take somebody out for coffee. Or look around the church for needs or for people who could use a hand and secretly give it to them. Sometimes preachers use this verse to tell people to give to missions. And that's within the scope of Jesus' instructions, I think. Um, Sharing the gospel is the ultimate act of friendship. But keep in mind, you are making friends, not just converts. You're not adding notches to your gospel gun. You're making friends who will receive you with love and joy into eternal dwellings. Using money in this way will require careful, prayerful thought. Christians have to think, and they have to think, well, this isn't just going to happen. You have to think about how to do it and think prayerfully so God can inform your thoughts. Now, if you're in debt and you can't do this, then begin by taking drastic action to get out of debt. Remember, money is a test, a get-your-feet-wet preliminary exercise. It's training wheels for tots. Dare to do what Jesus said to do with it. And now the warning, verse 14. When they heard all these things, the Pharisees who were money lovers sneered at him. Don't be like the Pharisees. They turned up their noses at Jesus, thought they knew better than he did. They thought they were doing fine with money. They didn't or they wouldn't believe the test results. Money revealed a lack of love for God. They were soul sick and they didn't know it. A person any person, a Pharisee or a a member of Lockwood Community Church is on dangerous ground when he or she starts thinking, I know better than Jesus. Of course, people don't put it that way. What they tell themselves is, yeah, well, that's true. But they think for other people. Or, I'm so glad I don't have that problem. Thank God. Don't fool yourself. Jesus knows you better than you know you. Don't turn your nose up at him. If we 
need to handle snakes, and we do, all of us do, we'd better get good at it. Use worldly wealth to make friends who will welcome you into eternal dwellings. All right, I'm going to let you pray for a minute about your money. Would you ask God if there's something he wants you to know about it, something here that you should do, or ask him how you can use your money to make friends. I'll give you just a minute, but pray about this after you leave here. This is important. Lord, some of us have failed the test. Would you give us another chance? And Lord, some of us have been bit by the snake. Would you heal us? Lord, would you work in our hearts and minds and the way we think and relate and what we value to the point that you can trust us with true riches. I pray for this in Jesus' name.